0: And when you look at the actual impact for most of them, it's a long tail, right? You've got your Kardashians up here, and it's a very skinny pipe of the influencers who can really move for you in terms of sales. And then everybody else, if you really start looking at their numbers,
1: they're not driving a ton. I'd like to welcome you to the Andy Worldwide Podcast. Your name is Dana Todd.
0: My name is Dana Todd belladonna is that right you're the closest so far it's belladonna okay yeah
1: um where so where does the name come from
0: it's gonna sound kind of woo woo but i was doing some meditation in my spiritual group and Mm -hmm. i had been really rethinking like what i wanted to do or be and by the way you can do that at any point in your life i feel like a lot of people are like oh no i'm baked Mm -hmm. i can't I was in my i think i just turned 50 and i was like huh what do i want to do with the rest of my life And, um, part of that journey led me to the entrepreneurial route again, again, third time it's a charm. And I received this name and it was just so silly to say out loud, balladana, 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 I felt myself saying it over and over Mm -hmm. again. I'm like, well, that's just dumb enough to stick. Why not? So
1: (laughs) (laughs) there's something for that. Just like a word that's sticky in the brain. Like it probably depends the language you grew up speaking, but I feel like there's certain phonemes that are just stickier. Yeah. And, also, um, and in English it's like it's got good rhythm. It's got a good you know? rhythm.
0: And more Vo- importantly, oh, voice consonants. yeah, for me, I actually received a logo as well. So yeah. for me, the logo was very important. It has a lot of circles. It's very womanly, right? But it also has a lot of really nice straight lines, so it's super balanced. So visually to me it was kind of like the there's a group of artists called the Futurists and they very much combined curves and angles in such a way as to create movement and balance and Feminine and positive and masculine energy. So
1: that's really what I was going for there. I like it. So let's back up a little bit. Tell me, what is Paladana in the first place? Paladana. And what are you guys doing? We are
0: the first and only United States market. There's one in Dubai that is 100% made to measure clothing. And what that means is that we do not have inventory. We do not have warehouses. Everything is made on demand. And more importantly, it's made precisely to your body measurements, So if you think of going to a traditional tailor and going for that kind of experience, it's that plus more. So you can literally buy something as simple as this blouse and, you know, 60 bucks, boom, you're done. It's made exactly to your body measurements and delivered typically within two to four weeks.
1: Do you not need to keep inventory for like the fabric and like the buttons and all the pieces that go into making... Clothing. Our
0: our makers do. Yeah, our makers do. And some of them offer things in limited supply. Some of them have recurring things. For example, this this fabric is actually gone forever and ever, which is great for me because I'm the only one who has it, right? (laughs) Uh, But now we're a marketplace. So we facilitate Mm -hmm. makers. So we work with makers. We have 12 12 makers right now in, I'll call it 10 and a half countries because we just signed up a a swimsuit maker in Puerto Rico. So that's not really a state territory, right? So 12 countries, they all do direct delivery. So my job is to run the marketplace, to do the marketing, to help do market education, customer support, and all of those things that make this uh, an easier experience for American women. Because women in the U.S. have not typically had this available to them. If you go outside our country, though, it's widely accessible, particularly in Asia. You You can walk down the street and have pretty much anything made very cheaply, very quickly, and it's not unusual for things to be made to your body measurements. Here, mm-hmm. we can't seem to fathom as consumers like what that looks like and how that's not going to be a $10,000 six-month process. Because for most women, yeah. all they've had experience in custom is bridal. And that's a very expensive, very time-consuming, very emotional experience. So one of the challenges that we've had is to really try to re-engineer women's brains around adopting this. As a slow fashion methodology, that's more sustainable and honestly more fun and satisfying in the end.
1: Slow fashion is a great buzzword. I love it. Did you you came up with slow fashion? I did not.
0: No, it's a thing long before me. But but we think it's we like the idea of it. Slow fashion means that you know it's the antithesis of consume toss consume toss, which is what the norm is right now with the fast fashion ethos. And you can, With frankly, every, um, you, you can make custom fast. It doesn't have to be that slow. Yeah. but it's just not like the, the term "fast fashion" came actually because they accelerated the seasons, right? So they literally would send photographers to the to the fashion shows, take pictures of what was walking down the aisle. Zero, you know, relay it back to the factory and within days they would have a complete uh, you know, set of sizes available with a knockoff version of that and have it out onto the internet. So that accelerated development and deployment model is, uses some of the things that we like, which is data-driven design, right, which is only small batch. There's, there's a lot of things to love about that model, but there's also a lot of things to hate about that model because they're typically produced in, uh, with very poor fabric. It falls apart, can't be recycled, and, you know, is typically yeah. not going to fit well. And it may be made with extremely underpaid uh, labor. So, and that's not just outside the U- U.S. It's here,
1: too. In my mind, the fast part of fast fashion was, like, it falls apart fast. <laughs> like, it's produced quickly, and, like, it falls apart quickly. Yeah. Or like, something you just buy for the short term. And I never made that connection between, like, um... Uh, like the style being what's fast,
0: yeah, because before that you would be as a designer planning two years out for your styles for your seasons, two years mm-hmm. because it would take that long to procure the fabric to get your providers in place to get everything sized appropriately and you know planned out and and then produced and then ready to deploy into retail, so two years you know then they they shortened that to about a one year cycle, and now with pandemic. It's just all dissolved into chaos right now. So, yeah, it's so trend,
1: fast fashion, <laughs> counter trends, slow fashion. Slow fashion. Actually, also, could you, um, your mic is brushing up on oh. the collar and it's making Thank some scratchy noises. So say I want to get a blouse made, similar to the one you're wearing. How much time do I need to budget? How much money will it cost to get it made?
0: This particular maker is based in India. They're one of our faster ones. This one is probably around $60, $65. And that includes the shipping mm-hmm. on their part. They're very um, they're very low cost. They're probably our lowest cost provider. And I should also clarify that because we're a marketplace, I don't do a retail markup. So the pricing mm-hmm. is low because I don't do a triple retail markup on it. It's literally they set the prices. I take a commission and you know that allows them to pay their people better and use better fabric. So for them... This one, their usual turnaround pre-pandemic was two weeks. We're seeing a little bit of a delay now because of, you know, shipping and, and fabrics and stuff. So, so, But they're still typically about three
1: weeks or less. Does that lead to a lot of um, variability in pricing within the marketplace? Yeah. Like different manufacturers. Oh, yeah, different definitely. Locations?
0: Yeah. And so one of the things that we ran, learned early on was that... Um, It was causing confusion for people when we had them all just Mm -hmm. kind of thrown in together like a big bazaar. You'd have a $1,000, well, we don't have a $1,000 blouse. We have like a $350 silk blouse, you know, that's gorgeous Italian fabric made by a Savile Row tailor um, out of London. And that's sitting next to a $60 blouse. So it was really confusing Mm. for consumers as to how to think about that So, one of the things that we did in uh, 2020 when we had some time and we had some downtime to to look at the site um, is we actually split them into two neighborhoods on our site. So, we have custom everyday and then custom uh, couture. So, basically, everything that's $300 or below goes in the everyday pile, and anything above that goes into couture. And they really are very different products. I mean, I can 100% tell the difference between one of the pieces that we have that's made from a higher end maker, like a really high end maker versus something that is a little more cheaply made you know they're none of these are they're not uh, what i call h&m quality none of these are i do a lot of work around curating and feedback with our makers to say you know what works what doesn't what i don't think is going to fly our maker our buyers are picky they're coming to us because they want something to last they want it to feel good they want it to be something better than what they can get on the
1: rack and how, how do you make money as the marketplace owner?
0: So we make money for, I charge a monthly hosting fee for all of our makers. And then I also charge them a commission.
1: So if they sell $300 um, dress, what is the commission that they're paying you My take that? is 20%.
0: So I charge a little bit more than, um, than Amazon and Etsy. But I provide mm-hmm. more services for that. And they're not in a big crowded marketplace. They get a lot more from working with us. I actually take their samples out, you know, to to uh, trunk shows and things like that. So we do have in our financial model a step up where we'll be charging for marketing services and things later on, so similar to how mm-hmm. Etsy does. And if you actually look at Etsy's structure, I've, I watch them like a hawk, right? So they they kind of lure yeah. people in with like, oh going to charge you? I think it's like 5% commission. It's a really low commission amount. But then they start adding in fees, right? So they charge per item listing fee. Then they charge you like an AdWords fee and you don't have any control over your AdWords. So they've been stepping up and stepping up and stepping up their little nickel and dime fees to where they're probably actually charging more than I am. Uh, if you actually looked at the total amount of intake. And I've, I've heard that feedback because some of our makers are also selling on Etsy.
1: Yeah, it seems to me like the Original promise of Etsy isn't really fulfilled anymore. Like It seems much <laughs> less bespoke. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, and they, they try to prevent dropshippers, but they haven't done a great job of policing it. And we have an explicit yeah. term in our merchant agreement that they are not allowed to drop ship. That's like a no-no. You do that, you're out.
1: Yeah, I get some insight. So my little brother is an Etsy witch. He sells some which services on Etsy, right? I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> Etsy. Neither did I. Neither did Etsy I. Which. He's 16 and he's a little hustler and he's, um, awesome. he's coming at it from a very capitalist point of view. So he's like, Ooh, there's like, um, you know, there's an arbitrage and opportunity here, Anthony, like the, uh, the I could I could dropship this on Etsy and I, it's like a fifty percent difference between what the same exact product is going for on eBay or whatever. Yeah, it's like whoa, all right, dude. Let me know how that goes. Yeah, well, and I think um,
0: he's he's not alone. There are a lot of people doing that right now.
1: Yeah, so I know if there's one if there's one little bro, there's uh, probably a thousand or five thousand entrepreneurs doing the same thing, and and um, I guess I create space though for companies like yours where it is more hands on curation yeah. on like a particular vertical. Where then you can also provide more services that are particular to that vertical. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. So you're providing. So you, um, when we were talking previously, you mentioned to like um, sizing services. So does like the platform take care of getting the measurements right for the people? that are buying clothes? It, it
0: does, you know, and it's something that we're always in the process of perfecting because our system will allow someone to manually input measurements from a tape measure or they can do, they can use a scanning part. We work with 3D Look right now. I have a few other scanning mm. partners that we're going to be integrating shortly. Um, the challenge with the scanning technology is that it's, um, it can be very user error prone there. Mm. It's, it's hard for it to police their, um, our partners in India, they actually have a physical store there and they use a very expensive $15,000, you know, closet sized scanner that you go in Whoa. and it's like medical grade. And the th- it thinks very,
1: very precise. Is this scanning something you've developed in-house or is it like a third party provider that you're able to integrate? Yeah, we work with third parties on that. That's not, that's not mm-hmm. something I want to continue
0: to invest in. From what I've seen yeah. talking to the technology providers over the years, they, they're all kind of struggling with A business model themselves right so there's it is competitive a lot of them just get bought very quickly the very best ones got snapped up immediately some of them Mm. buy retailers my goal and what we've been working on is technology that's a little bit different so it takes a different approach to it the way i look at it is that Mm. there are you're going to get scanned a lot more in the future. You are right. You're you're just going to be getting scanned, whether it's in your pocket or down at the smart mirror at you know in your high, in your yeah. upstairs or at the retail smart mirror that they have there. So we are building essentially a POS for body scanning companies so that what happens is we can intake that data and transform it into a common standard that our people
1: work with. How What's like the timeline on this? So right now it seems like you're very much a marketplace company. What mm-hmm. you're talking about is much more like a tech company. Um, do you see this as two separate businesses, one integrated business? Like What's the timeline for one versus the other?
0: I don't think of it as something yet that I want to sell because we have to make sure that it's you know, even useful for our own needs. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess if I give you, I have a lot of threads going on right now with the whole body scanning things. My involvement at the the IEEE and OCAC, which is the Open Circle Apparel Coalition, the challenge that we're seeing is that all the body measurements in the world do not necessarily dictate that the pattern will adjust accordingly. Mm. Because right now, once you get past body scan, all bets are off there's disconnected systems over there there's you know permutation of the data that may or may not yield exactly what you think you're gonna get when you're a consumer getting scanned in the first place. So all those systems have to do something with that data. So we can't do that alone. I'm you know a small startup, I don't have the, the kind of money for that. So working in tandem with a bunch of volunteers all over the world, we're actually trying to put together the pieces in the back end. So for me, that's a rising tide. That's not something that I can or want to own entirely. We have to have an mm. all-play on that. There really has to be an industry-wide adoption, really has to be um, everybody in to the pool. Now my particular part of this though, I would ultimately like to put some IP uh, around our, you know, our ability to you know, take that data and and standardize it into something that could then be repurposed. So we're certainly following along and saying, okay, whatever these standards are over here, we're going to bring those over into our system. Because we've been using, like everybody, we've got our own standards. Everybody's got their own standards. So we've been making up our own standards. I'm happy to change that as long as we've got consensus and that it can work with the systems that our makers are using.
1: seems like there's some potential here. Where like Amazon has AWS, right? I mean, Belladonna has this like body scanning as the like sleeper tech company behind the scenes. People think Amazon makes their money selling books and tchotchkes, but actually they make most of their money <laughs> providing services to other tech companies. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can do the same thing. And logistics, yeah.
0: Make a lot of yeah, and
1: logistics and like a whole host of things, right? But like AWS is represents a large portion of their actual like profit margin, right? Yeah. Um well, we hope ultimately margins instead of retail.
0: Yeah. We 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 are exploring a blockchain component to this. What we have to figure out though is I mean everybody wants blockchain. Like, oh, I need a crypto story. Please, God, give me a web three. Um, we do have one that we're working on, very separate and tangential. But the yeah. the blockchain keep we keep coming back to blockchain on this. Like, could you potentially store your body measurements in blockchain? Would that be useful? And I still think there's something there, but right now it's not adoptable broadly.
1: And like, probably not for like the retail, right. it doesn't seem yeah. to be more useful it, than it's... just having your measurements, exactly. but maybe for video game integration, like owning an avatar of yourself, um, could make a little bit more sense. I feel like this blockchain stuff actually makes more sense when you're living an entirely digital life versus when you're kind of trying to marry it with like a physical reality. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and you just you just inadvertently stumbled on the 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 Web three thing that we're working on. <laughs> ah, okay, so yeah, Video game clothing. We, well, it's it's more than that though, because it's not it's not just clothing. The the uh, there's there's that I the they've just come up with these terms. Which I'm kind of liking. Them. I'm going to try to find a way to work in. But so because they couldn't use this term clothing to describe all the things that you can put on your body, they've now gone with this mm-hmm. word coveroid. <laughs> so. <laughs> I know, it's a cool word. Humanoid. I'm like, okay. so far, I can't find Sounds a reason like not Blade to it, it is, right? So we've got a humanoid. Like you slip into your, a,
1: your coveroid your skin. Coveroid.
0: Like a... So we have coveroids and humanoids, right? So these are two parts. And in your humanoid, you can have your actual representation. And you may want a modified version of that for, for gaming and for metaverse. Um, but for clothing, yeah. in real life, you'd want it to be actually fitting your IRL itself. So there, yeah. there is, we believe, uh, a market for very high resolution humanoids beyond your personal use that mm-hmm. you could even be using these for commercial licensing. Yeah,
1: I can imagine like you get a very um, you know, attractive model, who you want to represent in your brand, you 3D scan them, you um make them postable, right? And then if it's uh like H D four K, right? Then you can post them however you want to like do your photo shoots or whatever. Yeah. Um yeah. sort of like what um, my friend Ralph who I introduced you to is doing with like Quarky and generating models, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I wanna bring it back a little bit though to like the, the business of today yes. and how you got to where you are today. So one, like how many vendors are on the platform right now? How many different like manufacturers? Right now twelve. To?
0: And we have, we have almost unlimited SKUs, meaning, you know, the, mm-hmm. the items. But I, I restrict it to about between three and 500 because I don't want to overwhelm people. Because when you get to permutations, mm-hmm. like a suit maker, sumisura, there's, you know, a hundred different fabrics alone, let alone buttoned configurations.
1: When a person comes and buys something on are they're usually buying a, a particular style? Or can they be like, yo, like, this is my idea. Can you make this?
0: Both. So the latter that you describe yeah. is called a bespoke, or it's a true bespoke. Like, I have this idea. Mm-hmm. Here's some sketches. So we do a little bit. Like tailored of that. versus
1: bespoke, right?
0: Yeah. So, all well made to measure. They're all tailored. Okay. Um, but made to measure means that we're following an existing pattern and we're just modifying it to fit your needs, customized to size and maybe some other components, like neckline or sleeve or something. Um, whereas mm-hmm. a bespoke is like, we had a, a woman who was doing a, a very special TEDx speaking engagement, and she wanted something that would really wow. So mm. she sent us a PowerPoint with all of her mood board stuff, and it was like, I kind of want this. I'm not really sure. And yeah. so we worked as a mediator with her and the maker, and they came up with sketches, sent renderings. We did the full, what's called a muslin stage, where you send a, like a disposable version of it to The person to have to do a try on and make sure it fits, test the fabrics and get all the approvals before the final piece was done. And it ended up being very elaborate, gorgeous. It was about $500. It had peacock feathers. I mean, this thing was just stunning. It was really stunning. I really made the the thing. So that's a bespoke. We don't do a ton of that. I don't necessarily want to do a Mm. ton of that. They are... They're good margins for us, right? And the the Mm. makers, some of them who do this, love it. It's just creative and fun for them. But they are very risky for us, and they're not particularly scalable. So because they do, they're a lot more hands on. The other part, which is the mainstay, is made to measure. And for that, it's pretty easy. People just like, oh, I need a shirt, or I need something to fit, or I have a party, or whatever. It's usually event driven, um, and then they'll just come to us, pick it out. If they, we do have some people who have gone through. sometimes a major life transformation or a body transformation. Mm -hmm. If they've had lap band surgery, for example, and they've had a significant weight loss, they may be struggling. They want to wear something really sexy or form-fitting, but they may still be struggling with their old body in their head or some pieces that still are providing challenges for them to find off-the-rack clothing. And in that case, then we'll work with them almost as a counselor,
1: like a style counselor, to help them find items. Um, What kind of volume are we talking about? How many individual items are you selling in a week or a month so we're still very small and you know i'm
0: Mm -hmm. not going to throw our sales numbers out here but but we're still very small and we're we're all grassroots man i it's all word of mouth Mm -hmm. for the most part seo i do a little bit of advertising i'm just now started ramping it up i actually turned all the marketing off during pandemic because yeah a, we were conserving cash, and B, nobody was really wearing pants, let alone party dresses. You know, for the last two years, so we've just started putting yeah. our foot back into the pond for marketing. And in that case, we we do start seeing this take off, and we'll see our our peaks usually are early in the year. Like we have a. Typically a February spike, and then we have one mm-hmm. in like the September time for August, September. As people think about fall weddings, we're very impacted by wedding season, even though we don't do wedding dresses because American women like to look good when they go to a wedding. <laughs> yeah.
1: So last September, more or less than like a thousand dresses made.
0: Look at you trying to like get my numbers <laughs> out. I would say last September definitely less than a thousand dresses. Less than a thousand. Okay.
1: Um, More than 10?
0: I can't remember. But let's say it was was slightly north of 10.
1: Okay. So so we're somewhere in like the 10 to 100 range. Yeah. On a monthly basis. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. And how long ago did you start Belladonna? We're talking like just before the pandemic?
0: We launched in 2019.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. so great timing, right? <laughs> just like a very difficult time to start a this Yeah,
0: it was really nice. We were seeing you know the, the steady rise, all the numbers that you want to see. Uh, you know, when we're bootstrapped, we mm-hmm. have uh, some friends and family that helped us get out the door, and we did a yeah. national PR tour. We did all the things right. One just can't really expect a pandemic to come along all the time. So I'm really proud of the decisions that we made, though. After when yeah. we realized that sales were just not going to happen, we turned inwardly and went back to square one and. Did a lot of user interviews and did all the things that we thought we did before, but maybe could have done better, like, you know, understanding the customer journey and some of those impacts and then making investments into our technology and we completely reinvented look and feel. We did a re- refresh on that and really kind of changed a, a lot of approach to our navigation and stuff. So, yeah.
1: Are you a solo founder? Do you have any co founders? I do have a
0: co founder, Nisha. She's living in Germany right now. So she's not able to put as much time in as she used to. But uh, so a lot, it does fall heavily on me as she's the brand genius. You know, she's the one who mm. makes things beautiful.
1: Are you guys? So she's part time, you're full time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any employees? You work with contractors to get things done. Yeah, we use yeah.
0: contractors only. But you know what? I did that even before my startup. Like I was a chief marketing officer. And I've all it's really funny, like pandemic didn't bother me for virtual. I've been working virtual for years. I I worked at an international telecommunications Mm -hmm. company and 90% of our workforce was distributed and virtual and all over the world. So in fact, that's how I really got comfortable with Eastern Europe as a market, both for development and for getting our clothes. Our
1: clothes are gorgeous coming out of Eastern Europe. Nice. And are you guys profitable yet? Are you able to pay yourselves?
0: Nope.
1: Still in the investment phase. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah um did you have you guys done like any like formal rounds it's just been like friends and family so far
0: we have not i keep getting up close this close every time um the challenges you know is like there's this magic sweet spot when you're still young and fresh and you know right out of the gate you can you can uh raise based on the idea and the dream of the team, right? Um, but then once you're yeah. past that three year mark, and we just passed it, right? So then you have to start showing a little bit more traction in your milestones. And so the challenge for us is that the the pandemic impacted our sales cycle so badly that um, yeah. you know that we're we're having to sort of rebuild from there. But it's going to take a particular yeah. kind of investor for us. We're when we did do some, we did actually say 2019. We were doing some investigations in early 2020 with with funders, and they're just largely not getting it. You know, oh. <laughs> we are very we don't have anybody else out there besides Etsy to compare ourselves to, right? So it's not like this is an easy SaaS thing where you just drop it into a spreadsheet and you know does this model work? We are we're a very different model, so um, I think it is a challenge for a lot of investors. They have to either have to have a passion for the space or have a passion for solving the problem of poorly made clothes and poorly fitting clothes. It is a monstrous issue. We've been lucky. We've found a lot of people on the build side who think like us, who've done the numbers. They're seeing that the, the financial impact of clothes re- being returned based on fit is it's around $500 billion. It's 40% of all returns of clothing are based on
1: fit issues. It's massive. It's really massive. Yeah. Um, well, you know, my bias is probably a little bit towards the bootstrapper, like
0: And I and I hear that. And that's like, honestly that's one of the reasons why um, I really love your community because it's all about it's not about just like hype cycles. It really is like you can do this, mm-hmm. just go sell a thousand bars. That's my spirit animal, the guy who started um RX bars, you know, those little protein bars. He's mm-hmm. he's from Chicago. I gotta give love to this guy. Every time I get frustrated or one of my colleagues and my accountability buddies is like why, why, why? I'm just like go sell a thousand bars. I don't. Do you know that story of this guy?
1: No, oh, this is the first I'm hearing about it's, it.
0: It's brilliant. He was.
1: I know the brand, like the Arts yeah. brand. Yeah. So
0: he was a young guy, and he had this idea for a startup. And he goes to his dad, and he was like, "Hey, dad, can I have ten thousand dollars to start this company?" And his dad's like, "No." <laughs> it's like yeah. go sell a thousand bars and then come back to me. And so yeah. he went out and he figured it out. He figured it, he went to CrossFit and started mm-hmm. you know putting them in there and he got the crossfit people to adopt it and they loved it right and then so once crossfit does anything they're very mouthy they love to tell their friends about everything so yeah. they they basically did the word of mouth for him he sold a thousand bars and learned a lot changed the formula made some changes to the to the product and then came back to his dad and was like all right I sold a thousand bars but by that point he already had you know a working model right. and find had
1: thousand dollars worth of sales a yeah. thousand bars worth of sales. There so. you go. So, Although, so maybe around a thousand dollars too, just because like, the they're not dollar, very but. expensive. But so yeah. what what's your thousand bars strategy? How are you selling clothing right now?
0: So we know that in order for us to be swimming along, we need to be pulling in about ten thousand sales per month. So that's my mm-hmm. true north. That's my thousand. Units or dollars? Units. Units. Okay. Yeah. Because you know, twenty percent margin, da da, da da da, right. So I need to sell 10,000 yeah. 10, items. Um, so the good things that we have found though is, and I should probably go back and adjust those a bit, but our average cart size is well over $300. So we, we had in our original projections, we were figuring cart size to be about 190 based on what we saw Mm. with Stitch Fix and some of these other services. But with what we're typically finding is that it's about
1: $302, but for the sake of just being, you know, 10,000 is a lot. Better of a number, like psychologically, I think, than 6,000, which maybe it would adjust down to.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we also want to be cognizant that we may not always have that high cart value because right now mm. it's a very curated sale. You know, we're helping them out and they're often buying multiple items. Whereas in the future, people, you know, might be just buying more one offs. But, but we do have return customers, yeah. which is really nice to see. That makes me super happy. Yeah. How are people finding out about you or how are you finding them? Some of them find us on the internet. Some of them find us word of mouth. A lot of them I have personally met out there doing these physical marketplaces. One of the things that we, yeah. we've found is, that, especially with a higher end purchase like this, we're actually not selling a product. We're selling a service. And that's why we don't work in a retail environment. We made a lot of mistakes our first year. Figuring out, you know, our thousand bars was, (laughs) was we figured out don't put yourself in a retail environment because people who are in grab and go Mm. mode are not going to sit down and hear your story. Um, Don't necessarily put yourself in an artisan market that isn't attuned to a particular um, demographic, Mm. right? So if we're sitting next to the homemade soaps, maybe... If it's the right market.
1: <laughs> yeah. But
0: maybe not, right? So, but getting out there and letting women touch the fabrics, because we were, like I said, we have people walk over and touch our stuff and they're like, oh my God, where did you get this? Yeah, you know, we we have stuff that you can't find at Macy's or Nordstrom. It's so high quality and they're really flabbergasted when they look at the price tag.
1: Are you shopping just in like the um, fashion district or do you have like, are you going to India? Um, I well, I went to Romania. That's where I actually found
0: our first buyers, mm. the Romania or our makers in Romania and Moldova. Um, I find people on Etsy. Sometimes they reach out to me. We mm-hmm. do a fair amount of outreach, you know. And I stock them. I look for their whether they've got good. Are ratings. Your makers
1: handling their own? Like, are your makers the ones going and sourcing their materials? Or are you, like, sourcing materials for them?
0: No, I don't source anything for them, but okay. I do provide input, right? So if I get a return and, you know, and it's based on fabric and, or I look at some of their samples, I'm like, this is yeah. not going to work for our buyer. We'll let them know to either upgrade their fabric or, you know, stop carrying So that. you
1: find somebody on Etsy you think is cool, you reach out to them. What's the process for getting them onboarded? Do they need to send you stuff first? They do,
0: yeah. We want to look at their samples. And sometimes that helps us weed things out. We can tell I've weeded out somebody who was ostensibly making custom-made sweaters, which were really Mm -hmm. mass-produced. Another one that looked great in the pictures, but you looked at the stitching and it was just mm, like very Mm. amateur. So we needed to be a a certain aesthetic and a certain value that we know is going to... Our sophisticated buyer is going to be able to tell the difference. So we look at their samples. We look at their background. We want to know about their making process. We want to see pictures of their studio, right, or their manufacturing plant, whatever they have. We want to know that we also want to talk to them about their sustainability practices. What are you doing? Are you working towards zero waste? Are you using sustainable fabric? We're not branding ourselves as a sustainable fashion company, because that carries mm-hmm. a lot of extra weight for certification. But we do have a preference for companies that are doing these practices. Yeah, I feel,
1: so putting myself in your shoes as like, oh, I own Belladonna, I want to market it. Like, I feel like I'd be really drawn towards... Um, Like influencers, you know, like Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, like finding these people who are talking about fashion, trying to get them to tell the story of like, oh, like my clothing didn't fit. And so I found Belladonna and I got my measurements made and look at this like beautiful piece that I got back.
0: I have been really challenged with influencers and, and I'm not sure why, but part of it is because we don't have a simple thing for them to do, right? For many of them, Mm. the way they work is you just send a merch, they put it on, they do a little show, bada-bing, everybody's paid, go home. They're not necessarily, unless you're investing in them and that process, unless they're investing their time in that process, then, you know, it's not necessarily working with everybody. And now the cost of it, they typically want, in addition to whatever you work, you know, the, the cost of the product itself, they're going to want a spiff on top of that as well. Um, and some of them want commission, which is fine. I'm happy to pay commission. But it does start adding up. And then when you look yeah. at the actual impact for most of them, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's not even a, a, it's a long tail, right? You've got your Kardashians up here and it's a very skinny pipe of the influencers who can really move for you in terms of sales. And then everybody else, if you really start looking at their numbers, they're not driving a ton. So you either have to have a high producing small set of makers and you're paying them well. um, Or you need to have a lot of people working overtime for you who are, are basically doing an awareness play for you, which is going to tip them the boat. But it's just hard for me to justify if I'm paying Let's say three hundred dollars out to get their custom made dress, and then I'm going to have to pay them another two or three hundred dollars on top of that. So there's my six hundred out plus all the time and effort, right, and dealing with that. And if they only sell two dresses, which is statistically high, honestly, unless they're a pretty high influencer, I which so on that three hundred dollar dress, I made forty bucks. I could take that six hundred dollars and just drop yeah, don't it don't in. I think to you ads. can
1: afford to pay them, right? You gotta I can. figure out a way yeah. to like cr- either create a format for them that they can copy, right? So like I think of um, like Shine, you know, yeah. like the hyper fast fashion, right? And these TikTokers will do Shine haul videos where they just buy a bunch of junk from Shine for like fifty bucks and then they like dump yeah. it out and it like clicks well.
0: Yeah. And that, um, that's a whole different aesthetic for us and our body. Yeah, it's yeah. very different.
1: So, like, that's the trend. Like, what's what's the exact opposite of that? Is it also interesting? Uh, have you tried, like, giving away, like, bespoke clothing to influencers? Just mm-hmm. being like, oh my gosh, like, oh, I love your look. Like, give me your measurements. We'll send you something cool.
0: Um, not broadly, but we've done a couple of one offs like that, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Any kind of um, outcome from those? or, or
0: No, that's why uh-huh. I'm saying I'm really skeptical <laughs> okay. of this technique. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Like, this is my brainstorm without like having tried it, right? So it's like.
0: Yeah, we made a lot of mistakes. We invested a whole lot of money in 2019 on things that just did not yeah. move the needle for us. You know, they really didn't. Even like, you know, all the way up to um, national magazines and stuff. So, mm. yeah.
1: Like running ads, like print ads?
0: Uh, no, we did some of that too. And those we we haven't found any trackable evidence that those work necessarily um but no i'm talking about actually making stuff for editors and oh, I getting them to to review you in a national magazine so we got the coverage but mm. no buyers the ultimate growth for us is is actually not going to look like Balladana now there'll be mm. a version in the future which has on-demand manufacturing of these things. It'll still be made to measure, but it it may not all be little nice little artisan people living in Lithuania. It may be a, a tech-driven process that utilizes even a United States-based on-demand manufacturing cell.
1: See where you get to wanting to really own some IP then around being like the body scanning company. Yeah. So that one like yeah. big retail moves in like they're not going to be working with your mom and pops. But they might want to use your like scanning technology yeah. in like, the process of.
0: But to be honest, I'd really like movements. to make this possible as supportive tech for small to medium sized businesses. The challenge there is, it just there's not. Um, A lot of the artisans out there just have no interest in technology. They don't want to sit down and learn 3D programming. Why would they? There is a a dearth, not just here, but everywhere, a dearth of people who can do fashion technology, right? People who are Mm. doing, we'll call them garment engineers. Like that's not even a thing, but it needs to be a thing because right now we just call them pattern makers. And that's like so cute and patronizing. What they do is friggin' engineering. It really
1: is. And it's astonishing somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think treating fashion as an engineering discipline, it makes a lot of sense. Like historically, the ancestor of the computer is the loom, you know, like actually like computers and like all everything we're doing now evolved out of the desires. I didn't know that.
0: That's a cool concept.
1: Well, I think it's cool. Like I want to be able to go into like even just like Uniqlo, be like scan me, bro, get turned around and then have... Um, all the clothes then come out, like, tailored exactly for my, like, unique and sometimes strange body proportions, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, LG has designs on that already. They had a... a a thing that came out from CES a few years ago. And you can see their sort of futuristic smart mirror that does toothy It, it mm. scans you. It holds your preferences. It looks at the inventory out there and makes recommendations. It's got a virtual try on. I mean, it's the ultimate dream, right? But I've been in the business now for a whopping three years. And like, I see all the issues with the back end of that. So that's what we're all working towards is trying to plug those holes to make that reality, reality.
1: Um, All right. So to wrap it up here, say there's um, a hopeful entrepreneur listening now. They want to get into fashion. They want to build a business in the fashion industry. What advice would you give them in particular?
0: Get really hands-on. Coming in as an outsider, I had a lot of presuppositions that were wrong, that were very wrong. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you have to go out there and become an actual sewist yourself, but the more you know about the process and the more you can as part of your first thousand bars, you know, make those first thousand bars as well. You're going to learn a lot about that, and you're going to make a lot of um, a lot of mistakes. But along the way, you'll also make a lot of friends. And so, I think in this this is this is a very disconnected and fragmented industry, and you should know that going in. But it's also, for the most part, on the make side of stuff, a pretty friendly group of people who are willing to share because we're all we're all feeling the same struggles. I would also say that it. There is a distinct difference between the art side of fashion, which is what you mm-hmm. see in the glossies and at the Met Gala. That is quite separated from the manufacturing side of things. Like, it is a chasm. The two don't even communicate for the most part. So mm-hmm. you need to decide where you want to live because it's, it's really hard to straddle.
1: If you want to work with the designers, go to the fashion show. If you want to work in the actual yeah production of clothing go to the the manufacturing lines yep yeah it's a very different world quite different
0: yeah lately it's it i had no idea how big a difference it really was and uh, that was the very my very first lesson and being a nerd and not a politician or a celebrity i was like ah i'll go hang out with the makers because that's really yeah. where i'm going to solve i think
1: yeah that's surprising so like designers just bring their designs to the makers and then they're gone
0: Yeah, they literally bring bring in a shitty sketch or whatever and like, here, make this, Mm -hmm. you know. And then they they think like elves make it all happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's a really complicated process.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That could be good for part two. All right, um, where should people go to follow your story and learn more about you?
0: You can find us on Instagram at Balladana, B-A-L-O-D-A-N-A, or go to our website, sign up for our emails. We do have awesome emails, I have to say. I love our emails. We really take a lot of pride in them, crafting stories and doing transformation things. Uh, And that's Balladana.com, B-A-L-O-D-A-N-A.com. And you can find us on all the socials. You can find me ranting about feminist issues at Dana Todd on Twitter. That's my other jam, just
1: yelling. Well, Dana Todd, (laughs) thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today. It was a pleasure talking to you.